0: It's time once again for civil action. How do you like that intro?
1: Yeah, that's too excited. You're too excited. I am. This excited show's today. not that fun. No,
0: we got great cases to talk about today. It is civil action with Brian Kavitek and Sean Carnickian. and say hi to everybody, Sean. That's me. Sean. And we are coming to you once again with a review of recent cases and developments. Well, actually, it's only cases today. That have come down from either the California Court of Appeal, the California Supreme Court, the Ninth Circuit, and occasionally the United States Supreme Court. But today, Sean, we have no cases from the United States Supreme Court. We don't,
1: but we do have a case. The case we're going to start out with is from the California Supreme Court. It has to do, once again, with one of our recurring topics, arbitration and procedural and substantive unconscionability, and uh, specifically employment arbitration agreements. Then we're going to talk about another but uh, California Court of Appeal case. Uh, that has to do with arbitration of successor and interest claims. And then we're going to talk about another California Court of Appeal case uh, arising out of the California Homeowner Bill of Rights. And Brian's going to fill us in on what that is and a little bit of the history there. Then we're going to move to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals and talk about CAFA, the Class Action Fairness Act, which, which is... Very fair, right?
0: Nope. No? Not fair. No? It's not fair? Not fair at all. No. So we're
1: going to talk about that and some further restrictions there. The court going out of its way to kind of screw consumers. Um, Then we're going to talk about recovering attorney's fees and what happens when someone interferes with an attorney's ability to collect uh, their contingency fee. And lastly, we're going to talk about a very interesting set of entertainment. facts here. Pure yeah, entertainment. a little bit of Our last case, stick around well, for our last you'll case. You'll learn something. You'll learn a little bit about the litigation don't privilege. Don't key scratch somebody's car. You, you shouldn't scratch someone's car, but you'll also learn about the litigation privilege.
0: So I think we have mostly interesting good cases today with mostly. one complete dog in the middle there. And a couple of boring hosts. But before we get to that, before we get to the boring hosts, oh no, we are the boring hosts. Before we, we get to the boring we hosts... Are. Tell people where they can
1: find us. They can find us online at kbklawyers.com and at Cabatech LLP on most social media platforms. And you can subscribe to us on iTunes. We looked at some of the stats the other day. We actually do have a lot of listeners. Not, not that many, but you know, no, surprising. we have a lot of More listeners. than just my mom and Brian's mom. So, you know, that's good. We'll take it.
0: Yeah, we're actually pleased that people like this and we want to hear back from you and get feedback. It's real important. So the first case we're going to talk about today is Odo versus co.
1: OTO. One Toyota of Oakland versus Co. K H O. It's Odo. It, it, it's an acronym. It stands for One Toyota of Oakland.
0: It's an acronym? No, it says Odo, not acronym. Okay. Well
1: anyway. Agree so it's to a disagree. California
0: California Supreme Court case. And you know, generally our feeling about the California Supreme Court, not just because we appear in front of them from time to time, is this is a really good court, particularly given uh Jerry Brown's uh four appointees on the court. Uh, in a 6-1 decision with a blistering defense, uh, uh, dissent, dissent yeah. by Justice Chan, I've always wanted to say that, blistering dissent, um, finds an arbitration agreement in a employment contract uh, void uh, and not enforceable.
1: How long was the opinion, just by the way, number of pages?
0: Well, the actual opinion itself is not that many pages. Well, the total, well, with opinion, the dissent, how long, how
1: long is the whole thing? If
0: you went to a printer and printed it out... It would be what, like eighty pages? Uh, I think like
1: ninety something pages. So you're getting—that's the value you're getting out of this podcast. We read it and then we summarize it for you. So we've read ninety pages. Yeah, we
0: have. And uh, but of those ninety pages, about seventy-five of them are the dissent.
1: That's that—that's actually true. We'll get to that in a bit.
0: All right. So here are the facts of the case. Important to understand for the case. Uh, We have a employment contract for someone who sounds like a technician at a company called Odo.
1: One Toyota of Oakland.
0: Okay, you say that, I'll say Odo. And he was a technician there. He didn't speak English. He didn't read English. They forced him to sign an uh, arbitration agreement by yeah, actually uh, someone showing— Someone that's
1: referred to as a porter, a human resources porter, approached Mr. Co, Ken Co, at his workstation and asked him to sign a bunch of documents. while well, he's working on a car. Yep.
0: I could just imagine this because I worked at <laughs> right. a gas station in high school, so I know exactly what it's like. Did he's you repair si- cars or yes, you get did, did. Like, filled gas? No, I, f- I fixed cars. I'm a, oh, wow. I'm a registered car repairman. Steam-powered car. Cars was made before, like, 1980. Like Ford Model Ts. Okay. So they show up at his workstation, and they give him something that's in English, and he doesn't read, write, or understand English. And they say, you need to sign this. It's an arbitration agreement. He signs the arbitration agreement. And you can imagine what happens, that his employment ultimately ends. I think that's code for fired. Uh, In April of 2014, And he files a complaint with the labor commissioner. And all employees in California are entitled for to a labor commissioner hearing called a Berman hearing that's right,
1: right. it's a statutory procedure it's codified in California law and it's a, it applies to all types of wage claims right not, so, not wrongful term or anything like that
0: but wage claims good point this isn't a wrongful term case this is a this is a wage case and he goes into the to the, arbit- to the uh, hearing in front of the labor commissioner and Toyota shows up and says Odo Odo shows up Odo
1: OTO shows up, and they, they file a motion to compel arbitration. Uh, the hearing officer rejects it and awards $100,000. Well, no, th-
0: there's an important factor there just sure. for humor. They leave. Odo leaves. Odo's lawyer walks out of the room and says, okay, them, we're yeah, out of here. That's true. That's and then true. they end up, not surprisingly, getting an award for about $165,000, dollars
1: Yep. And then Odo, one Toyota of Oakland, appeals to the Superior Court because that's where you go after the labor commissioner. And the superior court vacates the award, but declines to compel arbitration.
0: Then it ends up in the court of appeal, right? That's that's the logical next step. And yeah. the court of appeal says? The court of appeal
1: says... Um, We need to review this to see whether the litigation-like arbitration procedure in the agreement uh, would be a good substitute for the Berman process.
0: Okay, so now I'm just going to get a little wonky here, and people have to understand that there was a California Supreme Court case going back to 2011 called SONIC. And in that case, the California Supreme Court held that any failure to have a right to a a Berman hearing makes the contract unconscionable as a matter of law. And then that ends up crawling its way up to the United States Supreme Court, who redirects this, the court, the California courts to look at um, AT&T versus uh, Concepcion, the yeah. Concepcion case. It comes back, and then in Sonic 2, the California Supreme Court said, okay, they're not categorically unconscionable, but you have to look at them to make a specific determination about whether or not there was the right to a Berman hearing and whether or not the contract in, in its whole – should be thrown out.
1: Yeah. Um, so now it, it, the Court of Appeal reverses, by the way, the um, motion compel or the um, order uh, vacating the award. Where does it go opinion, next? And it goes next up to the California Supreme Court where right. this opinion comes from.
0: So, what is the, the California Supreme Court basically focused on here? Uh, enabled in, in the ability to determine whether a contract with an a unconscionability issue is void.
1: Well, it focuses on, so there's two elements of unconscionability, and we're going to talk about this in multiple cases today procedural unconscionability and substantive. Just two cases, but that's okay. Okay, two cases, multiple. It's more than one. Okay. Uh, Procedural unconscionability and substantive unconscionability. Well, first of all, they say over here it was highly, um, extraordinarily high degree of procedural unconscionability, given that's the the first prong.
0: But you have to meet both prongs, right? Yep. And the reason it was procedurally unconscionable? Um, because
1: they gave it to the guy when he was, you know, working at his workstation, had him sign it on the spot. It contained a bunch of legalese. He didn't speak the language. Didn't read it either. He didn't didn't have a chance to read it. Either.
0: Whose burden is it to establish unconscionability?
1: Um, it's the um, party the employee moving.
0: or the party moving, right. to okay. render
1: it or, or have it
0: deemed unconscionable. Yeah. So they look at the number of different factors, and the factors generally looked at for determining whether a contract is unconscionable procedurally is the amount of time the party's given to consider the uh the type of pressure that they're put under the length of the contract the education experience of the party and whether the party's review of the contract was aided by an attorney and there they looked at all of those and it weighed heavily in favor of finding that the contract was procedurally unconscionability that takes us to prong 2 substantive unconscionability what's substantive unconscionability
1: um to see whether or not it's the agreement is one-sided if there's any element of it that's unfair um if it Really, the way that I call this, is the employer getting screwed by the terms of the agreement? not Employee. Sorry, is the employee getting screwed by the terms of this arbitration agreement, not the manner in which it was presented to him?
0: The court pretty much sums it up by saying the question is whether the employee, through oppression and surprise, was coerced and misled into making an unfair bargain. Right. I think that sums it up very well. Were you coerced into making an unfair bargain? That's
1: the analysis. That's right. And here, the analysis focused on um, whether the Berman process here um, or the, the rights that are afforded to someone or the features of the Berman process are also afforded
0: to the employee under this agreement. So I wanted to kind of draw this to a close because I think we could talk about this case, this 90 pages of this case for the entire half hour. But- what really happens is they say okay this was both procedurally and substantively unconscionable under the facts and circumstances as presented to us and therefore the arbitration agreement's no not valid um it's it's fairly outrageous what happened here but when you look at the dissent we're not going to spend a lot of time on the dissent the the genesis of the dissent is United States Supreme Court, please take this case because my colleagues are idiots.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's what it is. Because the majority decides, the majority in the opinion, they decide that, look, here the procedure described in the arbitration agreement is a litigation type of procedure. But then they recognize while the litigation procedures are carefully crafted to ensure fairness, they're not saying that it's unfair. They say that This carefully crafted procedure can be costly, complex, time-consuming. So in the Berman process in front of the labor commissioner is basically cost-free and it's expedient. It's very quick. It's a lot smoother. So they say even though there's a litigation-type procedure in this agreement, it avoids the Berman process, which is cost-free. So therefore, we find it substantive and unconscionable. And then the uh, the sent kind of takes that and says – even though they agree that it's the uh, process and the agreement here is – is uh, carefully crafted to ensure fairness to both sides, they still find it uh, substantively unconscionable. So Judge Chen is up in arms about that. About the second
0: prong. He agrees with the first prong, but the second prong, he says, he would find that the second prong wasn't met, that it was substantively conscionable, which I found kind of outrageous. And I think ultimately what the Supreme Court is saying is you have to look at these on a case-by-case basis. You have to make that determination on a case-by-case basis. And if it falls with the burden being on the employee in this in this range of being unconscionable on both prongs, then the arbitration agreement would be null and void. But it might not all be null and void. There might be some exceptions to that. And what Chin is clearly saying, Justice Chin is clearly saying, in case he's listening, which is highly unlikely, it would be that under the circumstances, um, that goes too far and you're going to go right up against the United States Supreme Court. And what's the United States Supreme Court? Conservative. And bad. Bad. Okay. Yeah, All right. Well, I let's we've consumed a, a lot subtle, of time talking yeah. about this case. Like I said, it's a very interesting case, but now let's see sort of it in applicability in the next case. While well, not an employment case, Lopez versus Bartlett Care Center is a case that involves um a nursing home death case of a woman who was who died from uh, ultimately from probably septic shock from a, a decubitus ulcer also known as a bed sore.
1: Um Irene Lopez was is the decedent in this case, it's a wrongful death case. Um Irene Lopez got checked into a facility run by Bartlett Care Center called French Park Care Center um and she was in not so good condition to say the least. Yeah, what was she in, suffering from?
0: She came in from many of the things that I probably su- that you probably think I suffer from uh including dementia. Yep. Plus end-stage renal failure, uh, muscle weakness, other debilitating conditions, and her daughter uh, signs a arbitration agreement on her behalf.
1: Yes, her daughter Jasmine Lopez is there and signs a, a, a two-page document
0: entitled Resident Facility Arbitration Agreement. So there's a problem with that. What's the problem? Well, the daughter is signing it. Right, and she didn't have specific authority under the law. and. In order to overcome that, it looks like from this opinion, the employee of the uh, the nursing home basically lied and said she remembers that the decedent giving uh, verbal approval to her daughter, that the decedent was in the room, that she was conscious, she knew what she was doing, her mental acuity was there. And, of course, that's a starkly different picture than what the actual evidence is in the case. Yeah,
1: and now we're talking about the... Procedural and element of this analysis that we're talking about. So, so the the defendant here says, you know, it appeared that they had authority, whatever. Um, but then there's evidence submitted in the trial court level where Jasmine, the daughter of the decedent, says, no, she wasn't even in the room with me, so she would, right. she would have no way to convey purported and, and authority. And from there,
0: the court takes a detour and talks about the rules of agency. And it's important to remember that if the daughter clearly had agency authority on behalf of her mother, then the contract might be valid under the circumstances. But that that wasn't the case here. No, there's no evidence that she had it at all, that agency doesn't come from the person asserting that they're the agent. It comes from the person who's, agency agency relationship they have. So you can't just simply walk into court and say, Mr. Kabatak told me to come in today and to stipulate to um, have him disenrolled as a lawyer in the state of California. I have to have actually given you the authority. And for the record, I've never given you that authority
1: yeah and then the court ultimately goes goes on to conclude that this agreement is unenforceable because it's unconscionable and one of my favorite th- things here that I, I I highlighted here is that the facility the defendant argues that no it's not substantively unconscionable there it, well first of all, I should say the court says it's substantively unconscionable because there's so many one sided components to this agreement, and a lot of the uh things here aren't mutual but and and in response, the defendant says well look it's 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 not one sided in fact, you know, for example, the plaintiff can you know disputes over collections or evictions um apply to both you know they're allowed to bring those in state court, both the plaintiff can and the defendant can and and the court says that, that that's that's ridiculous because those things only benefit
0: the facility that's substantively unconscionable, according to this court as a matter of law because the only party that could pursue a collection action or an eviction action. Um, would be in court while things like medical malpractice, personal injury, elder abuse had to be pursued in arbitration. So that is one thing important because someone talked to me about this the other day in a case, and they said um, that certain aspects go to court and certain aspects go to arbitration. And if it's one-sided like that, I think that's a high factor. Right, it depends on what the
1: aspect is. Over here, why would the plaintiff or the resident of the facility care about being able to bring eviction actions or trying to collect? Who's who's the resident going to evict? right. Who is the resident going to collect from? For right. what? What are they going to collect from? So the court says, uh, it's a very uh, artful legal uh, statement here, the argument is absurd. The provision is clearly one-sided, benefiting only the facility.
0: Our next case is Bustos versus Wells Fargo Bank. Wells Fargo Bank is a great corporate citizen. It's done a lot of good things to help its customers over time, hasn't it?
1: I, I don't think so. I think they were recently in hot water over, you know, s- encouraging phony their accounts. yeah encouraging their employees to sign up. But a phony, a phony
0: account. account here and a phony account there. That's okay. Yeah. I mean, you know, when it reaches the level of like seven hundred and fifty thousand, it's a problem, right? Sometimes. I mean, but
1: you know, people have the freedom to contract and and you know even
0: when they're not contracting.
1: Well I I don't know I don't know we'd have to look look at that by so Wells Fargo this great based. citizen great corporate is culture
0: apparently trying to foreclose on somebody so what happens this is a California case it's the Court of Appeals the Third DCA and this action falls under the California homeowners Bill of Rights now the California homeowners Bill of Rights uh, came about at the time of the Great Recession. When homeowners were constantly getting evicted from their homes because they couldn't pay, when banks were ordered to um, refi their loans or recast their loans depending on, on, on what the circumstances and facts were, uh, also issues that came up at the time were unscrupulous, both lawyers and non-lawyers who were charging people large amounts of money up front. Which uh, they're not allowed to do. Can't charge any money for a refi or, loan or mod. a loan mod until actually it's happened, right? Right. Uh, and so in this case – So
1: the Homeowner Bill of Rights provides some sort of recourse. It provides for injunctive relief to remedy these types of statutory violations that occur prior to foreclosure and then money money damages if, uh, if the uh, actions occur
0: after the foreclosure sale has occurred. And then the prevailing borrower also gets attorney fees. Right, and the reason I included this case today, because let lets you a little a peek behind the screen, is we do sit ahead of time and decide which cases we want to talk about and which ones we don't, and we decided to talk about this case because I think that most lawyers don't completely understand the Homeowner's Bill of Rights. I don't think they don't understand exactly that it's there, what the benefits of it are, and the facts in this case, while not something that probably most of us will encounter in our everyday practice are illustrative of how powerful the Homeowner Bill of Rights is, the Homeowner Bill of Rights, in this specific fact pattern, um, which is as follows. The homeowner, at the same time they're being offered a loan mod, they are in the process of being judicially foreclosed upon.
1: That's right. And here, uh, the plaintiff, Rosanna Bustos, uh, brings a application for a temporary restraining order arguing that the bank's actions uh, were violative of the Homeowner Bill of Rights. And she wins and she prevails on her action for a temporary restraining order. And the court also awards her $4,200 in attorney fees under the Home and Noble Rights, which provides for the prevailing borrower, and that's in quotes, um, and the language actually says, "I'll read it." A borrower shall be deemed to have prevailed for purposes of the subdivision if the borrower obtained injunctive relief or was awarded damages pursuant to the section. So she didn't get damages, so that's not a question here. But she got some sort of relief. And Wells Fargo, on appeal, is arguing she got
0: she got a TRO. Right? She got a
1: TRO. Um, Whilst Fargo on appeal is arguing that this is a temporary restraining order, therefore it doesn't count as, um, you know, Bustos is not a prevailing borrower.
0: Right. They say that it has to be injunctive relief. It's not a TRO. But what the court ultimately holds in this case is that because of the statutory scheme and the way it's set up, you're either going to get a loan mod and this problem's going to go away, or you're not, and you're going to get foreclosed upon. So the most you'll ever get is a preliminary injunction. So a TRO and preliminary injunction of the statutory scheme qualify. And as a result of that, she's entitled to attorney fees, she's entitled to costs. And that's really the the yeah. Gist to the case. Yeah. But important to keep your eye on that homeowner bill of rights. There's there's statutes out there that most of us don't engage on a regular basis, which someone may, you know, come into your firm, maybe talking about a case, there may be some benefit, and that's one of the reasons I wanted to talk about it. All right. Let's go on to the next case. Uh
1: Arias versus residence in by Marriott. Is that Mike Arias? No, no, that's not. Um, that is this is someone by the name of Blanca Argelia Arias suing uh Inn in by Marriott. And this did is, she have a bad stay? I think so. I think that's what it arises out of. Um, n- no, I believe this is a employment action, Brian. Okay, but and the, a class action.
0: But the reason the case it's employment, but but it doesn't matter that it's necessarily an employment case. What matters in the important it facts doesn't. about this case are the principles of when someone can remove a case, meaning take it from spirit court to federal court, when they can remand it from federal court back to state court and the Class Action Fairness Act and how that all applies.
1: So one of the ways cases traditionally or typically get remanded is if there's complete diversity. Parties from different states on different sides sides of the Removed. Sorry, what did I say? Remanded. Remanded. Sorry, opposite. Removed is if the parties are from different states. Um, However, there's another way for getting a case removed. That's under CAFA, the Class Action Fairness Act, which is anything but fair.
0: I want to point one thing out, though, Sean, besides the fact that you're having struggles with removed and remanded. I always do. Words are different. To remove a case under just pure diversity principles, not only do you have to be citizens of different states – um the defendant has to not be a resident of the state in which the action's filed, and the amount of controversy has to be at least seventy five thousand dollars. Right. Complete diversity. Case, not a and, class that's right, case, but a normal case.
1: Complete diversity and seventy five thousand dollars. And the defendant
0: can't be the citizen of the state that the case is filed in.
1: Right. Oh, that too. Yes, that's Thank right. You. That's right. Okay. Agreed. He's correct. For once.
0: But then um, we go into CAFA.
1: CAFA is the, – the threshold is almost kind of lower under CAFA. It even is though, lower. Even though the amount in controversy is higher, you need a $5 million amount in controversy, um, minimal diversity is the requirement. Right. You need a class action with minimal diversity, a $5 million amount in controversy, and usually the hang-up there is the $5 million in controversy. Any member of the class
0: is a citizen of a state different from the defendant. That's number one. Yep. And – it you it used to be that you had to establish that every class member's claim was at least seventy five thousand dollars. And now they say it doesn't matter, it could be a dollar, but as long as the aggregate amount is at least five million dollars.
1: So the typical workaround and I don't even want to call it a workaround because that implies some sort of, you know, uh, you know, being shifty there, or what's the term you use? Trickster, being a trickster. trickster. Yeah, we're not trying to be tricky here, but the, but the way to avoid this is, in your complaint, and also not to foreclose yourself from seeking a greater amount, ultimately, um, you don't allege an amount in controversy, you don't, you don't allege anything above $5 million, you don't put anything into writing asking for more than $5 million.
0: So, there's a trend here, and I'm going to kind of cut to the chase on this case, because sure. this is a bad case. Very bad. The trend here has been going back to a case from the United States Supreme Court called Standard Fire about six years ago, that the first thing you, they're saying, we're not going to let people be tricksters. In fact, we're going to really hardly uh, force this this rule, this CAFA rule. And what they tried to do in Standard Fire was say, we'll, we'll agree not to take penny penny more than $4,999,000, something like that. Court said, no, you can't do that. That's the Supreme Court. This case goes a little bit further and says that there are three principles in CAFA removal cases. First, um, that the notice of removal doesn't have to have evidence, just can have allegations about the value of the case being more than $5 million. Second, that the defendant's allegations, if they're challenged, then the defendant can show based on reasonable assumptions, so it doesn't have to be concrete evidence, reasonable assumptions. And third and finally, that um, they can actually include attorney fees and costs if a statute – provides for them. Or contract provides for them. That's right, and
1: and these are existing principles. But I think this case just kind of goes out of its way to reemphasize them and put them all into a one co- very and, convenient. Uh, and what document. this case
0: does, Sean, is it gives a roadmap to defendants that's, that's on how exactly, exactly, exactly right. to do it. That's exactly because right. I was this gonna say one case,
1: convenient package for defendants to present anytime someone's trying chart, to. Remote. Here's a chart. Here
0: shows how much we're, we're we could be exposed to, and then the case even bends over backwards and saying, that, of course we're not saying that the defendants are agree that they're liable to this we're just saying that this their conjectures and apparently then the burden would shift to the plaintiff on a, an emotion a to remand. Yep. That um, that it would then become their obligation to prove that the defendant's evidence, and it doesn't even have to be evidence, is wrong and um, and, and, and not correct. And you can incur attorney fees, which is exactly what happened here. They said, well, the typical attorney fees in a class action case is 25%. So we add this, and then finally they come up to like $19 million. And what I love about this case, though – is the court make short shrift of the fact that they said during the pendency of the appeal there was a notice of settlement in some other case that would have gutted this case, and the court of appeal says, oh, we didn't care. Yeah, it doesn't matter. Doesn't, doesn't matter. matter. Doesn't matter. So I think all in all, this is the second case we've covered um, in about two or three months' time on this subject.
1: Yeah, I think a couple of weeks ago, actually, we covered Airman versus Cox, um, where, again, the court went out of its way to say that all defendant needs I don't know some validation. You
0: know, I guess they're just full of haters because the the I would think that a district court judge would love to see a way to kick these cases back to the yeah. superior court. Yeah, but they see that it's not you know it's not possible. So let's get on to um, a couple of interesting cases here to round out today. The first one is Mancinian and Associates versus Schwetz. It is uh, out of the second DCA, but out of the sixth division, which is up in Ventura, written by Justice Gilbert, who if you've ever read anything by him, he's, he's a really awesome writer. Yep. And in this case, he starts off the opinion by saying, of course, on occasion, a client may not fully appreciate the excellent result achieved by his or her attorneys.
1: Such an occasion provides the background from which this case arises, and that's exactly right. So over here, um, you have uh, the plaintiff here is Mancini and Associates. They represented Miss Gina Rodriguez in suing the defendant, who's also the defendant in this and, case, and Jason a,
0: Schwetz. Who was her employer, right? Who was her employer at, at a tanning, tanning salon. salon.
1: Tanning salon. Big fans of tanning salons here. Um, so anyway, the um, Mancini represents... Uh, Miss Rodriguez in the case obtains a result, uh, a very good result, four hundred and nine thousand dollars in a um, was it in a trial or I, I'm not sure. I think it, yeah. some, somehow in the action, yeah, following a court trial, Mancini obtained. Four hundred and nine thousand so dollars. In addition, big fat judgment. In, in addition, to that, and I don't even
0: want to speculate what the award was based on. But in addition to that, there's about a hundred and fifty thousand dollars in fees and costs that are awarded to the attorney. Yep. And
1: they try to collect forever. And how much do they get initially? Forty dollars. Forty dollars. So, and, and forty dollars is pretty far from you know half a million dollars.
0: And then years later, like five or six years later, um, Ms. Rodriguez decides that she really wants to reach out to Mr. Tanning Salon. Yep,
1: she gets in touch with Mr. How uh, does she Swan. get in touch with
0: them? I was going to ask you Facebook, 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 and what do they? What <laughs> they do go to they lunch. Do? They go to lunch. And They, they make well up.
1: when when Mr. Schwetz uh, asks for lunch. How does Ms. Rodriguez respond? I don't know that how Ms. Rodriguez oh, she responded. Says, yes, that I'm she still was single. Quote single as usual. Single as usual. So the
0: uh, so they go to lunch. And together. the good news, the happy news is they resume their friendship. Yep, they and they then they go friendship. to lunch, and as a result of the lunch. They make up. They but make in up. the meantime
1: – Mancini has hired Michael Burke, a collections attorney, who's reached out to the
0: defendant in, under, in the underlying Yeah, niche, I want to get paid. Mr. Schwetz. I want to get says, paid. You know, I want to get big, paid. Big fat judgment. I want to get paid. Where's the money? I want to get paid. Money? And then what, what happens then? What does Mr. Schwetz do?
1: Schwetz and Rodriguez prepared a document entitled Memorandum of Settlement and Mutual Release, releasing all claims, including but not limited to the um, attorney, fee attorney claims, fees,
0: which belong to Mancini. So Mancini sits there and says, You can't do that. And this goes up to the Court of Appeal. And um, it says, One of the findings is that the third party who impairs an attorney's rights uh, may be subject to liability. And they find specifically that the fee agreement, when the fee agreement was entered into, that it specifically was designed to deprive uh, Mancini of his attorney's fees. That's right. And in fact, it's so go good that he testified that that Schwetz is that his name, Mister Schwetz. Yeah. Schwetz yeah, yeah. testified that the purpose of the memorandum, at least one part of it, was to resolve the attorney fee claim. Right
1: and And the most incredible part of this is that Schwetz makes an argument saying that this argument is subject to a settlement communication
0: privilege right, so that 's sort of the legal issue in the case is he tries to raise basically a, a, a settlement privilege saying you can't introduce it, and the court of appeal says no
1: that's the that's the document that it's one of the documents in the course of your tortious conduct towards towards the uh attorney that 's the plaintiff in this case that 's the very Subject of this action—that's that's that—that's what gives rise to this whole action—the so, the settlement
0: agreement. So the final issue on this case is after all of this, and the court finds that he still owes the fees and he interfered interfered with it. The court then goes on to award him costs and presumably fees yep. for trying to call award him the picks. attorneys their costs and fees. So sometimes mm-hmm. the best decision is not to try to be cute or, like you said, a trickster. Yep. No so mean trickster. Our, our last case today is Davis. Versus Ross. And Sean, I am going to give you the honors of describing the facts in Davis versus Ross. Okay,
1: this is pretty exciting. So, uh, Mr. Dennis uh, Ross and Miss Diane Davis have a dispute over a disabled parking space. Um, Miss Davis allegedly keys the crap out of uh, Mr. Ross's car. Vandalizes the term that uh, is used in the opinion. Now, Mr. Ross reports this to the police. The police approach her, and they say, look, if you don't pay for the damage, we're going to have to press charges. And she tells the police to go screw themselves. She doesn't use those words, but doesn't respond favorably to them. And then the police sergeant obtains a arrest warrant for felony vandalism.
0: And uh, she actually pleads no contest. Yep. And then after pleading no contest and presumably being sentenced she decides this is all wrong. I've been outraged, and I'm going to sue Mr. Ross. Sues Mr. Ross and – The guys whose car she key scratched, right? As an
1: individual and a trustee of his irrevocable trust for uh, uh, false, false imprisonment, fraud, libel, slander, uh, IIED, and abusive process. And then at the outset of the trial, Ross makes a motion for judgment on the pleadings uh, premised on litigation privilege. Court grants it, says, yeah, no brainer. You can complain to the police uh, and that's subject to the absolute
0: litigation privilege. So besides the comedy feature, why do we actually include this today?
1: Um, we include it because it highlights the litigation privilege,
0: right? So the litigation, and it also highlights the issue about a tort that used to exist in California called spoliation of evidence,
1: right? Because one of the responses that uh, Miss uh, Ross or sorry, Miss Davis has to the court granting the litigation privilege judgment on the pleadings is no, no, he spoiled evidence by uh, by putting uh, s- scratches on his car that weren't there. The scratches weren't there. He made that up.
0: So never mind that the tort of spoliation of evidence is gone in California because it was overruled by court decisions. Um, but the, the premise, even with spoliation of evidence, is that you can't hide behind the litigation privilege, which is exactly what I think she was trying to do here, right? Right. That, that, that's what she was arguing. But the court said, no,
1: that only applies to you know, non-communicative conduct, uh, such as an act of wrongful citizen's arrest or, or illegally recording a phone conversation. Here, this supposed you know, fake scratches on the car were part of the community of conduct, also subject to the absolute litigation privilege. So I think that's the lesson here. Aside from it being an entertaining set of facts, two people mad at each other. One of them keys the grab out of his car and then gets arrested for felony vandalism. Sometimes litigation like some never ends. Yeah, but it's just a fun story, but but litigation privilege if someone ever accuses you
0: of, you know. Yeah, it just goes on. And it does amaze me yeah. sometimes when you read these cases to see how much effort put people put into issues, which on paper at least are seemingly small. So. Yeah. My last issue last thing I wanna say is that although a case like that may not come to an end, this this is coming to an end. Thank you for listening. More
1: fortunately for for the for me and the listeners.
0: And any of those that are still with us, thank you for listening. Tell them where they can find us.
1: They can find us online at KBKLawyers.com. Check it out. We usually put on some seminars probably once a month. We have some interesting ones coming up. Free CLE credits and free wine is all you need to hear about that. Uh, don't come for the entertainment. Come for the CLE credits and the wine. And stay
0: for the entertainment.
1: Sure, but I, I guess that's only if Brian's not there that day. Uh, So thanks for tuning in and we hope you check us out next time and please subscribe and uh, keep us posted. Let us know if you have any feedback. Thanks a lot.